0: This
1: is Maureen Milliken, And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff.
0: The podcast. You would do, if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And we're here... Um, In my house. Yep. Yeah. So hopefully it'll be a little quieter. Yes. Then um, At least no trucks and cars going
1: by. There might be some, but yeah. a de- I live on a dead-end street, so... I don't think we have any
0: updates. No. We do have something we're fired up about. Can we talk about it for a minute? Yeah. This will go up a week or two after this has happened, but who knows, maybe the... Yeah, but it's a Super Bowl ad, so... Oh, is it? The flap over the toxic masculinity to ad. I didn't realize there was a controversy. I didn't even realize there was an ad until I read a front-page column in the Boston Globe by Christopher Merther, one of their entertainment writers, who is um, a gay man and who was bullied and treated horribly as a child, and he makes a very good case for why this ad is important. I'm a little floored, so I hadn't seen the ad, so I went on YouTube and watched it, and I'm stunned but not stunned by the fact that there's so much backlash to it. It shows some different bullying situations and other situations, And it also shows men stepping up. Well, that's the whole thing. It's
1: showing men stepping up and against bullying
0: situations. And misogynistic things. Like there's one boardroom thing where there's a woman looking very uncomfortable and the guy is saying, I think what she's trying to say is blah, blah, blah. But then it shows other things. Like it shows a man, a man (laughs) of color, holding his little toddler daughter in front of a mirror. And she's saying, I'm very strong. I'm very strong or something like that. There's a lot of images in a minute and a half, yes. but one of the big criticisms I've heard is that it, quote-unquote, paints all men with the same brush, and there was an interesting tweet where she says, basically, it's interesting how men don't see themselves in the good guys in this commercial.
1: The one that I sent you is a tweet by Heather Polly. It said, because it mildly suggests men examine the world from someone else's perspective. Hell, the very notion that other perspectives exist is upsetting.
0: Then there's one in reply to that from Ms. Brenda that says, The dimwits making not all men comments are unable to relate to the good guys in the ad. Oh, I didn't. And it's funny because when you watch it, and I watched it a second time after doing a little more... Reading about it, it's not just one guy stepping up. It shows a bunch of different situations, and then it shows a bunch of guys acting in honorable, good yeah, ways.
1: It shows guys being assholes and guys being good guys. I don't understand. And the fact
0: that there's so much backlash shows why I had like this is necessary. That's
1: what someone said. They said they watched on YouTube and then read the comments, and was like, "Oh my god." And it's like, well, first of all, don't read the comments on YouTube. Well, I swear well,
0: well, on YouTube it's had like 6 million views, or did when I looked this morning, there were more than half a million thumbs down, and only a quarter million thumbs up. That's pretty sad. The thing is, that Gillette, their tagline... Their, tag their buzz phrase... or Yeah, their, well, their phrase, their
1: advertising phrase was... It used to be the best a man can get, I think. Mm -hmm. And now this one says the best a man can be. And I honestly don't understand what the controversy is. I really, I don't.
0: I understand. I
1: understand what it is. I just can't believe, I guess, that people would actually be offended.
0: Well, like a lot of things going on these days, you think we're moving forward, and then you see the backlash to something like this, and you see how backward... And it's funny how a lot of people pointed out that ads
1: aimed at women are constantly telling us how we're supposed to be. I know. And you don't see us getting all And this isn't really
0: telling men how they're supposed to it's be. It's demonstrating yeah. how the difference in how some men behave. And I'll give Gillette credit. One of the images is some of their earlier advertising it is. It um, is. that objectifies women. It is. And at the very beginning, they're showing that, And then it's like, it's one of those big things like a football team burst through at the beginning of the day, and a kid burst through, and then all these kids burst through chasing him. And I'm not sure how anyone can in good conscience watch that commercial and have an issue with what it's well, trying to If you have an issue with what it's trying to say, then, then you really need to examine Well it's just the your, same thing. It's like I always say to people,
1: if someone's calling you out on racist behavior, then maybe it's time for some self-reflection. Yeah. Or if somebody says to me, hey, that was a really bitchy thing to say, then I stop mm. and think, maybe it was. Yeah. And you stop and think about if you feel somehow that you're being targeted if someone's pointing something out to you that makes you uncomfortable then I think that means it's time for you to take a look at yourself and say, why do I feel this way? And not that the people that are complaining are actually the type mm, that are going to reply. Right. They're,
0: they're not going to. And a lot of men who have behaved these ways have been given a pass on reflecting on their behavior. The One of the things the ad says, you know, the whole boys will be boys thing. You know, so it's not being excused or rationalized anymore. I don't understand how people can support bullying behavior. When you watch that commercial, how people can support being people called names, how people can support people being marginalized or objectified or treated like crap. Well, it's just we're being too sensitive. And, of course, one of my least favorite TV celebrities. Piers Morgan. Yes. He's like, you know, why can't we just allow boys to be boys and men to be men? Totally missing the whole point. Mm Or maybe getting the point but not liking it, because, you know, when you've been allowed to treat people like shit for thousands and thousands of years, you don't want to have to change. Apparently not. So that's what we're fired up about. So do you want to start your presentation? Yes, I do. On Monday, August 28,
1: 1995, staffers of American Atheists showed up to their headquarters in Austin, Texas, to a memo on the door. It read, quote, the Murray O'Hare family has been called out of town on an emergency basis. We do not know how long will be gone at the time of the writing of this memo. The memo was signed by John Garth Murray, who is the son of Madeline Murray O'Hare and the acting head of the organization. This seemed odd since the Murray O'Hares, as they called themselves, had just recently bought plane tickets to New York for September. They planned to picket Pope John Paul's appearances, which took place in October. And I think he St. John Paul. Mm, Yeah, they had the American atheists. Actually, were going to do a big protest. The Murray O'Hare family referenced in the memo consisted of Madeline Murray O'Hare, her son, John Garth Murray, and her granddaughter, Robin O'Hare. Robin had been officially adopted by Madeline. And I'll talk about that later. So she was Madeline's other son's daughter. And Madeline had adopted her as her own daughter. The trio Madeline, John and Robin lived together and did everything together. So it wasn't too unusual that they all decided to go off suddenly together. They had just come back weeks before from a vacation in Virginia together. Spike Tyson, no, (laughs) I don't think he's related to Mike Tyson, a staffer at American Atheist, paid a visit to the Murray O'Hare home. He reported that Madeline's blood pressure medication was on the kitchen counter. Breakfast dishes were on the table, the meal seemingly interrupted. A more thorough search turned up the family's passports. On Tuesday, August 29th, the place where the family usually boarded their dogs, they had three small dogs, the Griffith Small Animal Hospital, got a call from Robin. The receptionist said Robin was crying and told her that the O'Hares had to leave town suddenly, a family emergency. Robin said she didn't have time to drop off the dogs and asked that somebody from the hospital go pick them up, which they agreed to do. No one ever came back to the hospital to get the dog. Ah. They had three little ones. They look like Dachshunds, maybe long-haired Dachshunds. There was a picture of them on the, mm. one of the shows I watched.
0: You know I always like to know what breed the dogs know. are.
1: For the next few weeks, the only way the staffers at AA, as I'll call it, to make it quicker, American Atheists, could reach the Murray O'Hares was by calling John's cell phone. Sometimes an unknown man would answer and hand the phone over to John. One AA staffer, Ellen Johnson, who later became president of American Atheists, was very frustrated and upset. She told Time Magazine a few years later, They were being very cagey. You couldn't get a straight answer. They were lying about a lot of things. That was obvious. I was screaming, what the hell is going on? Are you okay? And they're saying, just calm down. Everything's okay. Everything was not okay. Robin was totally disturbed. You could hear it in the way she talked. About Madeline, Ellen Johnson said, I've talked to her for years. Something terrible had happened. Just after noon on September 29, 1995, John's phone was turned off. Madeline, age 76, John Garth Murray, age 40, and Robin O'Hare, age 30, had disappeared. On October fifth, when they didn't turn up in New York, people at AA really started to worry. A few people were concerned for their safety, But most thought they had left on their own accord. Some assumed they were escaping their financial worries and legal worries, and there were those, as we will discuss. Others thought that Madeline, who was in very poor health by that time, battling high blood pressure, heart issues, and diabetes, had gone into hiding in order to die with dignity. She did not want Christians praying for her when she died, and she did not want a spectacle. And she she had said that many times, I don't want anyone praying for me. I don't think she wanted... Her grave? You know what? I didn't even look to see where they're buried, but anyway, spoiler alert. (laughs) Oh, they die? (laughs) Some believe that the three had stolen millions of dollars from the organization and were living it up in New Zealand or somewhere else. There was some shady stuff going on, as we will discuss. The American Atheist Organization, though, insisted nothing was amiss no money was missing, and that the Murray O'Hairs were on a business trip. A lot of people thought that the fact that they did not take their dogs, if they really were going to take off like yes. that, they would have taken the dogs. They didn't right. go on long trips without the dogs. There were those who suspected foul play. Arnold via an AA staffer, told Texas Monthly Magazine, off the wall, I think the Vatican did it. The Vatican <laughs> or the CIA, someone with enough clout to cover it up. Yeah. And they were gone for years. No one really tried to find them, not right away, anyway. So who was Madeleine Murray O'Hare, and why would the Vatican or the CIA want her dead? Mm. Well, let me tell you.
0: Okay, good.
1: Because I did mention her name to a couple younger people I work with,
0: and no one knew who she was.
1: Well, but people of our generation do, because she was on TV all you know, the time. Well, it's
0: he, it's funny not to. I, I, not spoil anything, but we used to watch the Phil Donahue show yeah. all the time. That's and I felt like she I was on her. there all the time. Yeah. But then when I looked on IMDb, it had like one appearance. But no, maybe that's wrong. she's been on a few times. Oh, okay. Uh, she
1: was his first ever guest, oh, wow. as a matter of fact. In um,
0: National? Because no, he started no, in, in Dayton, Dayton.
1: in Dayton. Where we lived. Yeah. yeah. The first time I became aware of who she was was seeing when I was a kid. We used to see her, her on Phil Donahue. Donahue. Yeah. yeah. She was born Madeline Mays on April 12th 1919 in pittsburgh pennsylvania her father was john as opposed to new hampshire hey well people no i
0: know i know
1: i'm just we have listeners all over the world i know her father was john Irwin mays his ancestry was irish Mm. he belonged to the presbyterian church oh her mother lena christina maiden name Scholl, was from a german background and lutheran in a Saturday Evening Post article from 1964, Madeline, then known as Madeline Mays Murray, said that her paternal ancestors had been on the continent since the 1600s, some of the first settlers of the Massachusetts colony. In a 1989 Texas Monthly article, John Garth Murray said that the first of the Mays family to come to America was a chaplain on the second ship to arrive at Jamestown Colony. So who knows? Bullshit. bill murray madeline's oldest child <laughs> i know i was like halfway through and i wrote that and i was like oh bill murray not to be confused with this, this guy is now a christian guy yeah madeline's oldest child wrote in his autobiography my life without god <laughs> that lena madeline's mother tried to end her pregnancy with madeline by jumping out a second story window
0: oh then, that is not a surefire abortion method. I don't think she
1: really did any. Yeah. Then he wrote, Even Madeline's birth had a bizarre element. Grandmother swore years later that Mother had been born with an unusual dark membrane covering her whole body. It resembled a black shroud, and Grandmother claimed that the doctor at hand said it was very unusual, though he offered no explanation. He gave a portion of the membrane to her, and Grandmother kept this odd keepsake for many years.
0: No. But it just goes to show early on that people try to look for ways that somebody with strong opinions are different from everybody else. This
1: shroud isn't really bizarre or a mystery. It's called a veil or a call, and one in about 80,000 babies are born with it. It's part of the uterus lining that just sticks to the baby.
0: It's a little disturbing.
1: The doctor didn't know what it was. Well, I think he did. I think it's stupid Bill Murray, that didn't know. Mm -hmm. There are superstitions attached to it, and one of them is that the baby is special or gifted, especially gifted with psychic abilities or good luck. Madeline and her older son Bill's accounts of family history are wildly different. Madeline called her father Pop and said he was a wealthy contractor. But Bill called him, quote, a good carpenter, but the man never filed a tax return in his life. Madeline wrote, I wish I could do a for right. We have always been affluent. I grew up in Cadillac cars, commodious homes with linen damask tablecloths and heavy silver and oriental rugs and a concert grand Steinway piano. I had fur coats and diamond rings and designer dresses. She also said the chauffeur of our Rolls Royce was black and shiny and he rode me on his shoulders. Mm. But Bill said the chauffeur was a family friend who brought food to the Mays family when Madeline's father went broke. After Pup's Construction Company failed, according to Bill... Pup opened a roadhouse that was also a brothel and had a rum running business during Prohibition. Now, I guess both accounts could be true, because people were living beyond their means in the 20s, so he could have been rich and gone broke. But I also think Madeline and Bill were both prone to exaggeration and making shit up.
0: If he went broke when the Depression or whatever started, she would have only been 10, be 10 or 10, 11 or yeah, 12. But, but she said, we grew up with all this I stuff. Know, but
1: she have... Madeline and her father had love-hate relationships. She called him a Nazi and a racist, but also (laughs) bragged that he was the only construction man in Pittsburgh back then who went to the union for his journeyman and paid union wages. Good for him. But she and Pup fought constantly. Supposedly, the last words she said to him when leaving the house on an errand were, Oh, I wish you would drop dead. Uh Uh-oh. When she got back, he was dead. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Madeline once told an audience, I hated my mother's guts. She is also quoted as calling her mother a cowed at whipped dog. Mm. bill said that madeline and her mother were not on speaking terms for five years before lena's death and madeline did not attend her mother's funeral when madeline was four she was baptized as a presbyterian at some point her family including older brother john irwin mays jr called irv Mm. moved to rossford ohio madeline said when she was 12 or 13 she read the entire bible in one weekend and was quote, stunned with the hatred, the brutality, the sadomasochism, the cruelty, the killing, the ugliness. Mm -hmm. Yet another account of Madeline's Bible reading and questioning of its contents is more gradual. She wrote, I went in and said to my dad and mother, do you know what's in the Bible? And for the next couple of weeks, I would read little things to them. My mother just drew herself up and said, that's not my Bible. Mm -hmm. That ended the discussion. I never accepted the Bible after that date at all. I refused to go to Sunday school. I refused to go to church. What were they going to do, hang me by my thumbs? That ended it right there. However, according to Bill Murray, Madeline wrote, this is, sorry, according to his autobiography, I didn't find her high school yearbook, so. Madeline wrote in her high school yearbook that her ambition was to serve God for the betterment of humanity. So she probably did write that in her yearbook. I just don't know. It was in Bill's autobiography. In 1936, Madeline graduated from Rossford High School. And she did graduate from Ashland College later, which is connected to the Church of the Brethren, which is a Protestant religion. So I think she was questioning, but maybe she wasn't disbelieving yet.
0: But also you can go to a church-affiliated yeah. college. I mean, I really? went to Holy Cross, which is a Catholic Jesuit college, and there were uh, some Jewish people well, there. So and you, and come you can... to
1: your police. I want to interrupt my narrative to say that much of her personal history comes from her and some of it has been disputed. As we will find out, she tended to self-aggrandize and embellish her background. In some of my research, I came across reporters who tried to confirm some of her history and didn't find evidence of some of her claims. So take some of this with a grain of salt. I'm getting this information from a lot of sources, mostly Texas Monthly, the San Antonio Express News, Wikipedia, Tons of TV sources. Uh, she did many, many interviews. She loved to be on TV. And she was a compelling guest. As I go along, I'll try to give credit to wherever Where I got the information. D- a lot of it I got from more than one source. But I owe a lot to two articles from Texas Monthly. One from January 1989 by Lawrence Wright with the title, God Help Her. And one written 10 years later, May 1999, by Michael Hall titled, Has Madeline Marie O'Hare Met Her Maker? Both are written in kind of an annoying, condescending tone, mm-hmm. but they did have a lot of information. But the, the way they're written is... Ugh.
0: When people have views that are not widely accepted, it, they're treated... Yeah, the press talk, treat we, almost like they're not real... Yes, yeah, so we can control. talk about yeah. men, uh, at the end. Yeah. In
1: 1941, Madeline married steelworker John Ross. Inspired after the attack on Pearl Harbor, John Ross joined the U.S. Marines and Madeline, the Women's Army Corps,
0: or WAC. <laughs>
1: as him. Madeline worked as a cryptologist and was stationed in Italy. There she had an affair with Officer William J. Murray Jr. She ended up pregnant, but because Murray was Roman Catholic, he refused to divorce his wife. This is how it's been reported. Yes. Um, my personal feeling is that he also would have gotten in trouble for infidelity. His career would have been in jeopardy. So right, sure you could get kicked affair. out yeah. court-martialed you still for that. You can still get kicked
0: out. And I know, yeah, I've read too, it's because he was Catholic. But my guess is she's just like many young women who get impregnated by a married man in authority. I mean, who says he even wanted to leave his wife? She may not have even cared. Yeah. Uh,
1: Madeline says she was on General Eisenhower's staff in North Africa and Italy, but the archivists at the Eisenhower Library found no record of that. I think that might be her embellishing. Yeah. She did serve in Italy, though. I mean, she wasn't lying about that. In any case, Bill told a story in his book, My Life Without God, which I really think shows what a bullshitter Madeline was. He wrote, Mother always relished telling one story in particular. I want to just break in to say I could never read his whole book because of the way he writes. About her time in the army. Though I doubt it ever happened, it illustrates the sort of grandiose ideas about herself that her army experiences somehow fostered. While she was in Rome serving on General Eisenhower's staff, she and some friends went out for a night on the town. After a more or less conventional round of dining and drinking, according to Mother, they arrived at the Vatican around three o'clock in the morning. Drunken and rowdy, they nevertheless gained entrance to St. Peter's Basilica by bribing a Swiss guard. Once inside, with champagne bottles in hand, they made their way to a room where the three-tiered crown used in papal coronations was on display in a glass case. Mother never said how, but she claims they managed to remove the crown from its case. Thereupon they proceeded to act out a mock coronation of my mother as the first female pope. If true, Mother's knack for attention getting theatrics was already fully refined. I think that story just shows that she likes to make up stories. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and there could have been a kernel of truth, like maybe they tried to go there, maybe they talked about doing it, you know, and then over the years it became...
1: A lot of what she does and says is for effect and shock value, and I also think, and I mentioned this later, that a lot of things she says she may have been being sarcastic or just saying stuff without caring what
0: whether it's true or yeah not. just because it's a good story yeah. in
1: 1945 when she returned home from italy she found her parents were living in a shack with no electricity or running water according to bill murray she soon learned her father had spent on booze all the money she had sent home for savings the whole family was destitute she was pregnant and her husband not the father of her child was expected home any time I believe it was during this period, as she was pacing the dirt floor of that shack and mulling over the dismal outlook for her life that her extreme anti-God views were born. Hmm. Now, I think Bill is as prone to bullshit as his mother, because he also wrote, by this time, Mother's antagonism toward God had reached an advanced stage. He wrote that during a bad thunder and lightning storm, she said she was going to go outside to, quote, challenge God to strike me and this child dead with one of those lightning bolts. Then she supposedly stood in the rain, shaking her fist and cursing God. When she came back in, she said, You see, you see, if God exists, he would surely have taken up my challenge. Now I've proved
0: irrefutably that God does not exist. First of all, she's probably not the first person to do that. And second of all, I think her her views probably came over years and years. of.
1: When John Ross returned, he offered to stay married and raise Bill as his own, but she decided to divorce him. In 1949, she graduated from Ashland College. Shortly after that, Madeline's son Bill. So, Bill was born in, a, a little later in 1945, and Madeline took the name Murray, even though she hadn't married Bill's father. So, when she when he was born. She changed her name to Murray after she got divorced, or she added it to her name. She was Madeline Mays Murray, and her son was William Murray Jr., or the third. He was the third. In 1949, she graduated from Ashland College. Shortly after that, Madeline, son Bill, brother Irv, and parents Lena and John all moved to Houston, Texas. Madeline worked as a probation officer and attended South Texas College of Law at night. Though she received a law degree, she either never took the bar exam or didn't pass, depending on the source. The family moved to Baltimore in 1952 when Pump got a job there. It's like they all moved... So they're all traveling around together. (laughs) Madeline worked various jobs by her account. A model, a waitress, hairdresser, stenographer, lawyer, aerodynamics engineer... Advertising manager and psychiatric social worker. Wow. This is where I was thinking. I think some of this shit she just said.
0: Although, who knows when the war ended? Yeah, you know? that's true.
1: I know she did work as a social worker, aerodynamics engineer. Who the hell knows? Who knows what she learned in the Army? In 1954, she gave birth to a second son with her partner, Michael Ferrello. She and Michael broke up, and she gave her son the name John Garth Murray, the same surname she had adopted for herself and had given to her other son. From what I gathered, John never met his biological father. According to Texas Monthly, John was baptized in the Methodist Church. In 1957, she started going to Trotskyite Socialist Workers' Party meetings. In
0: 1957?
1: Yes. Wow. In 1959, she applied for citizenship to the Soviet Union, when she didn't get a response, she took the Queen Mary across the Atlantic to Paris and went to the Soviet embassy and tried to defect. Bill Murray said the Soviet embassy didn't know what to do. It was the first time they ever had anyone trying to defect to them. And I was thinking, what about Lear? Yeah, Lear-? I was just saying he say, might have been after her. It,
0: might, it was around the same time, yeah. so maybe it was a thing back then.
1: They came back to Baltimore, where her life as a famous atheist was about to begin. Ooh. There are many different stories about how her famous lawsuit, Murray versus Curlett, came about. In a Playboy interview in 1965, she said, I was shamed into it by my son Bill, who came to me in 1960, he was 14 then, and said, Mother, you've been professing that you're an atheist for a long time now. Well, I don't believe in God either, but every day in school I'm forced to say my prayers, and I feel like a hypocrite. Why should I be compelled to betray my beliefs? I couldn't answer him. He quoted the old parable to me. It is not by their words, but by their deeds that ye shall know them, and pointed out that if I was a true atheist, I would not permit the public schools of America to force him to read the Bible and say prayers against his will. He was right. Words divorced from actions supporting them are meaningless and hypocritical. So we began the suit, and finally we won it. I knew it wasn't going to make me the most popular woman in Baltimore, but I sure as hell didn't anticipate the tidal wave of virulent, vindictive, murderous hatred that thundered down on top of me and my family in its wake. And also,
0: Baltimore is a bastion of Catholicism. As from
1: watching The Keepers.
0: Yeah, well, I knew that before that, but it's... Well, she said that
1: about about Baltimore, and she also said, from living in Baltimore, she's, there's some quote of hers that said, forget... About religion being the opiate of the masses, baseball is because mm. you are living in Baltimore. Yes, mm. um, a lot of that story is suspect to me. Most accounts say that she heard students praying when she was in the school, either registering Bill or for some she was in the school for some other reason and and saw that they were praying. I guess she could have asked him about it, and he gave her that eloquent speech, but I sincerely doubt that a 14-year-old gave her that
0: speech. Maybe she's paraphrasing. Maybe he came home, and maybe he was even giving her shit and said, well, Mom, you're an atheist, but yes. we have to pray at school, so what's that all about? That's true. You That's know, true. and she just extrapolated it into an okay. eloquent speech.
1: It is definitely true that the family did suffer during the three years it took the lawsuit to go to the Supreme Court, especially Bill. The family received death threats, their house was egged. Someone strangled and killed Bill's kitten. Wow. Bill was harassed and bullied at school. Kids liked to spit into the slats in his locker door. They, Ew. Know, um, once a group of bullies cornered him at a barber shop and taunted him by singing Jesus Loves Me. When he tried to escape, they pushed him in front of a city bus.
0: Maybe they should all see that Gillette commercial. I know. Huh.
1: I, I know that reminds yeah. me of it. Madeline blamed the constant harassment for her father's fatal heart attack. Um, Also, I'll say that my ex-husband is, he's 60 now. He was born wow, in born in 1958. Before this, he went to school in Bath, Maine. They did used to pray in school, and he's Jewish.
0: But they were Christian
1: prayers. They, they were Christian prayers. praying prayer. the Torah. He did not pray yeah. because he was not Christian. He did get beat up. He did get bullied. Madeline received bags full of mail. Most was hate mail, but she did get a lot of letters of support and money. Bill claimed it was enough to support the family comfortably. In her book, An Atheist Epic, Bill Murray, the Bible, and the Board of Education,
0: Jesus Christ, that's a long title,
1: Madeline wrote, When we had first moved into one of those row houses in Baltimore, I think that I picked one out for purchase deliberately in the hopes that I could be like everyone else. I had wanted so desperately to fit in. I could not engage in conversation about which bleach was the whitest for the wash. I never gave a damn about the chlorophyll and toothpaste. The idiotic idea of backfronts visiting left me completely cold. None of my work had ever taken up even a fraction of my thinking processes. And too often I would pace that basement library floor like a lioness caged, the wrap of loneliness, of aloneness always about me. Mm. I just wanted one person somewhere, sometime to understand me, and I never found any. Well, she can
0: join the fucking club.
1: In 1963, the Supreme Court of the United States, under Chief Justice Earl Warren, found in favor of the combined cases of Abington versus Shemp. Shemp. I, knew it. I didn't know Shemp was. <laughs> I knew yeah. it. I knew. And Murray versus Curlip, which expanded Sorry. on the 1962 de- decision, Engel v. Vitale. These decisions got rid of both mandatory school prayer and Bible readings in public schools. So she
0: wasn't the only one. No, they combined it with another case. Right. Three cases, two cases.
1: Well, the other one had already been decided, okay. and they
0: just expanded okay. on that decision.
1: Although the Shemp case got top billing, <laughs> <laughs> the Shemp the didn't want the line white, But Madeline did. Brian Lebeau, who wrote a biography about Madeline Murray O'Hare, said, Quote, Madeline walked right out to the front of the Supreme Court building, her son by her side, and grabbed the microphone from the press and insisted this was a major case and she was responsible for it. She took credit and then went on to say that she wasn't done, that she was going to go on and challenge all kinds of other church-state matters. And she did do it, so I don't know why he's making it sound like, ugh, she said she was going to do this. Yeah, she did. Right,
0: and frankly, I don't think her... Like, lots of times her wanting publicity is used as, like, a criticism of her yeah. views. And somebody had to do it. I know. You know, the fact that she was willing. They did a lot of good things. The, a well, lot of worthy. I was just going to say, the fact that she was willing to stand up for her beliefs and not just sit there and say, okay, that was done. Yeah. Says a lot about her. And it's easy to oversimplify. And people have done it because they found her abrasive. Yes. And they didn't agree with her beliefs to oversimplify her motives. Yes. You exactly. know. Exactly. In 1965, Bill's high school girlfriend,
1: Susan, gave birth to a daughter, Robin. I never found out why Susan didn't or couldn't raise Robin.
0: But Bill didn't say in his autobiography? I didn't read it. <laughs>
1: and I'm sure he rationalized his own yeah. abandonment of his daughter, right. which he basically did. And then he tried to make it up to her, but she didn't. She wasn't interested. Well, he makes it sound like Madeline poisoned her against him, but it's like, fuck you. In 1964, after being charged with assaulting five police officers in Baltimore, apparently when they were trying to remove Susan, Bill's girlfriend, from her home, Madeline and the family decided to leave Baltimore. They went to Hawaii, where they took refuge in a Unitarian church. Not sure why they left Hawaii. I couldn't find that anywhere. But then they moved to Mexico. All I could find out about that is that they were expelled by the Mexican government and ended up in Austin, Texas. In Austin she married Richard O'Hare in nineteen sixty five and added his name to hers. She described him as both cruelty and love, patience and anger, ignorance and knowledge. Ooh, <laughs> he sounds so enigmatic. <laughs> he spent time More in or jail just like an asshole. <laughs> no, he sounded like an asshole. He spent time in jail for aggravated assault against Madeline, so it wasn't a happy marriage. Bill Murray said that Madeline had intended to divorce O'Hare, but then learned he had terminal cancer, so she stayed married in order to get his pension. He is described in everything I read as an FBI, which is the Federal Bureau of Investigation, for those who don't know. Mm. He's described as an FBI informant. So I'm like, what do they mean by that? Well, then finally I found something that told me. In the 1940s, Richard O'Hare belonged to a communist group in Detroit. He gave more than 100 names to the FBI. Oh, uh,
0: what a, uh, Yeah,
1: in the 50s. Yeah. And he was investigated for claiming to be an FBI agent.
0: Hmm. Girls, what, if ever wasn't. a guy says... He's trying to pick you up and tells you they're an FBI agent or a CIA, CIA agent. Usually they say CIA agent. Yeah, yeah they
1: usually here. do. Yeah. They're he, not. He died in 1978, still married to Madeline, though they had been estranged for years before his death.
0: And just the whole thing about... She planned to divorce him, but stay with him for the pension. First of all, if you're married to the guy and he's dying, you should get what he had. Second of all, he could have divorced her.
1: I know a lot of people that just stay married. Right. And they they separate. They just don't feel like doing anything about it. Bill Murray wrote, It is my opinion that my mother's maniacal campaign to remove all reference to God in public schools and government stems back to this issue. Madeline Murray was mad at men, and she was mad at God, who was male. Mm. And I say to that, please. Yeah. (laughs) Typical male opinion, he's making it all about himself. Yeah. Like, all about men. It's like... Why would it have anything to do with men, being an atheist? Oh, I hate men Because God's so a man. Early in their marriage, Madeline and Richard started a church in Austin, Poor Richard's Universal Life Church, to illustrate their opposition to tax-exempt status for churches. They were trying to get churches taxed. But they were trying to start the silly church and get it tax-exempt to right. show how right. silly they thought it was. Richard was president, pastor, and prophet, and Madeline was, was bishop. There's a film clip of her putting on a clerical collar and laughing. Bill Murray said, my mother is a cult leader, if you haven't noticed. Well, she makes the Reverend Moon look mainstream. And the Reverend Moon, for the, this was in 1989, he said that. The Reverend Moon... Yeah, I guess he's dead Sun, young now. moon. Is is the unification church still around? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. We'll have to do it forever. But it was a cult. It's it considered like, cult a cult church. Although mm-hmm. some
0: people can argue that any religious order led by Me one and Madeline person is would. a
1: cult. Bill, for his part, had gone into the army after Robin's birth and worked at Braniff Airlines, but came back to Austin in 1975, quote, to help with the family atheist business. <laughs> All of a sudden, I was back in all of this irrationality, the screaming, the hollering, the profanity, the drinking. Sounds like fun. I started to drink heavily myself. <laughs> when I finally left Austin in October of 1977, I was in total emotional distress. I got a car and drove to Tucson, Arizona, and opened a bookstore. <laughs> I, was, I thought you were going to say <laughs> ask if he was looking for some Arizona grass. I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he was thinking. I know. <laughs> Oh, but
0: JoJo left Tucson. Already. Yes, I was going to say that.
1: He said... JoJo left his home. Yes, that's right. He said, my conversion was not a reaction to my mother's being an atheist. It was a reaction to the total swirling chaos that surrounds everything that has to do with my mother.
0: Right, like so many people, he turned to religion for answers and stability. Well,
1: listen, then He eventually ended up in San Francisco and started going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. The where, other AA. Yes, where he found God he said oh god
0: was an alcoholic too
1: yeah he said but i was praying to a god i didn't know i said please god get this garbage out of my mind about my mother let me walk away from my past and do whatever it is i need to do it took me two years after i had said yes i want to believe that jesus is the christ to convince myself that that's what i believe i'm like so you convinced yourself i don't Mm, yeah whatever I think his issues have to do a lot more with his mother than anything else. Yeah. And I'm sure she was not an easy mother. No, I'm sure she wasn't. Madeline didn't appreciate his spiritual awakening, which happened in 1980. She reportedly said, One could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother, I guess. I repudiate him entirely and completely for now and at all times. He is beyond human forgiveness. I don't know if she actually said that or not. Yeah is attributed to her. Still, Madeline had her younger son, John Garth to help with the family business. She had formed American Atheists in 1963 after winning the famous lawsuit. The membership over the years has been in dispute. While Madeline once claimed to have over 100,000 members, others claimed it was only 2,500 or less. The official number in the late 1980s was about 55,000. They had enough to open a large center. It was 16,000-plus square feet. In Austin, it contained a printing facility worth millions of dollars, had a library of 25,000 volumes, and it was tax exempt because yeah. it's a nonprofit. Right. Madeleine had an assortment of employees, an at American atheist, someone who had been in prison for threatening President Reagan, a gay activist with a phone sex business. A Vietnam vet who lost his belief during the war, ex-cons, students, and people who just needed a job and didn't care about the philosophical beliefs of their workplace. Madeline wrote in her diary in 1979, We can afford lumpen proletariat employees and that's what we get. Flotsam and jetsam, pimps, whores, hopheads, queers, pinkos, drunks, glue sniffers, and freaks. I'm absolutely fed up with all of them.
0: <laughs>
1: Her diaries actually went on sale in like 1999. There were personal diaries there. Yeah. Madeline was president until 1986 when John took over. Madeline, John, and Robin ran the organization all serving the top positions until their disappearance. It was like a family right. organization. Madeline liked to say democracy doesn't work for a nonprofit organization, which in some ways it might not because you got too many people. Right trying to run things
0: you still have to run it like a business and businesses don't work as democracies Mm -hmm. a non-profit is a business it's just one that doesn't make a profit
1: madeline and her strong personality is the reason it became so successful and still is today it's still in business uh, over 20 years after her death she was very much like the televangelist she probably couldn't stand she was always asking for money she lived a pretty good life by the time she died in many ways she was i mean she knew how to get the bucks
0: Well, you have to if you're running a non-profit.
1: She was the first guest on Phil Donahue's show in 1967. She was also on a 1970 episode where she debated with Bob Harrington, the chaplain of Bourbon Street, and that is on YouTube. In 1988, he re-ran it, and somebody taped it. Phil Donahue
0: did And just a note about Phil Donahue, we lived in Dayton, Ohio from 1968. To 73, and his show was local, and then later it went, yes, it went national. But we used to watch it all the time, and I loved him. Yes, we and it. he's married to Marlo Thomas. Yes, but he's kind of a douche. Well, he's a man of his generation. Their debate, the debate. An of, Irish Catholic man of um, his generation.
1: Bob, So, this Bob Harrington guy, the chaplain of Bourbon Street, is someone that he had apparently had lived. Uh, rowdy life and then found Jesus or something. Their debate was interesting and it's almost flirty the way they talked. to each mm. other. They have a very good chemistry. She laughed a lot and she looked a lot smarter than him, that's for sure. A lot of people in the audience did not like her, but she did have some supporters well, in the audience. And
0: I'd like to say too, you have to be smart to be in her position yes. with her views because, because you have to constantly fend off arguments. Yes.
1: This was the first time the two had ever met, but after the show, they took their show on the road, hmm. they went and did speaking engagements together. It was a very interesting, they weren't arguing, that was nice about it, it was, he was a good person to debate her. He wasn't a, an angry type person, He's just like, well, blah, 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 and she would just. You know. And she'd say, whatever. you
0: ignorant? Animal. No, she would just laugh, but
1: <laughs> yeah. she would call him ignorant, but she'd laugh. Yeah. So Donahue reportedly said that Madeline was unpleasant off camera and mocked him for being Catholic. But in her defense, he gave her shit every time she was a guest on his show. Yeah. He would ask her stupid questions. And she was
0: on many times right. we saw her. And what I was going to say when you said earlier that he was kind of a douche, I give him credit. I know it helped his ratings too. Yes, but he, and he did gave admit her that. a forum. Yes, he did. And. A lot of people wouldn't have. Although a lot of people
1: said that have had her as a guest said she's a great guest because she's controversial and people will watch.
0: Right, and I, also for all she probably doesn't have a sense of humor about no, himself and I don't she think was probably does. teasing. She him. was teasing
1: him. I say she was giving him shit. Yeah, I don't think that I wouldn't call that mocking. If no. I knew somebody, if I if I knew someone that was super. Catholic like he apparently was, even though he did get divorced and Mary Marrow. His I wife died. Judge. Oh, so, never mind. He was a widow. Okay. Widower. Sorry, I'm a shithead. But if i were someone that's really religious, I'd tease them. I mean... Well, put it, it this way. I have not.
0: I have friends and people we're related to who are very Catholic and some you can tease yeah, and too. some you can't.
1: Yeah. So. And uh, it's funny, too, because Bob Harrington, the the chaplain of Bourbon Street audience member said something about why do you ask Phil if he's saved? I think Phil's fine, and, but I was like, "Cause he's lost, he's not saved or And, Phil's and also,
0: and also, FYI to it, Protestants, Catholics don't use that terminology of I being saved. It. That's a that's a they Protestant that. construct. But that's why they're saved the when we're, we're papists. Born. That's we're why.
1: Uh, anyway, not we. I'm not a Catholic. I mean,
0: I'm an atheist. No, I just full never, disclosure. You're never,
1: you'll never not be a Catholic. I know. Well, it's a cultural yes. thing. <laughs> anyway, Madeline kept herself busy and in the news. Her organization filed a lot of lawsuits. You can look on Wikipedia to see. Or on there, they actually have a website, which I did some research on, American Atheists. Many of the lawsuits have great merit. For instance, Hare v. Hill in 1978, challenged the provision in the Texas Constitution that anyone holding an office of public trust had to believe in God, had to express a belief in God. So, yes. She won that suit. And a lot of states had that provision. I saw her on a PBS show where she was talking about that You know, after she had just won this one. They had like PBS Tonight or and, something. And by
0: the way, the First Amendment points out that the government I mean. can't set a religion and making somebody profess a belief in God... It's states' rights don't beat the Constitution. In 1983 or 1984,
1: Madeline became a speechwriter for Hustler magazine publisher, Larry Flint, mm. who was running for president as a Republican. Yeah, I forgot about that. Kind of surprising, because Flint was a born-again Christian by this time. When he announced his presidency, he said, If elected, my primary goal will be to eliminate ignorance and venereal disease.
0: Good for Larry.
1: Unfortunately, <laughs> Larry Flint's presidential aspirations were dashed, when he was sent to prison for contempt of court, he refused to give up the source of the secret tapes he had released having to do with John DeLorean's arrest for drug trafficking. Mm. Remember John DeLorean? Yep, the car guy. I sat in the dorm. When
0: was, oh, maybe you're going to say this. What? Oh, about Larry Flint being shot.
1: Oh, I don't know. he, he had was already paralyzed. been shot. Oh, he was already. He was but, already.
0: But, you know, maybe they, even though they were different in some ways, Larry and Madeline, w- one thing was they had faced a lot of legal. Yes, and he still fights. had, he
1: still has. And Republicans were different uh, back then. Yeah. Well, Larry Flint was in prison. He gave Madeline his power of attorney giving her control over everything he owned, including Hustler magazine. Wow. The assets were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Larry's brother, Jimmy Flint, filed (laughs) for conservatorship in Los Angeles and stopped her from taking over. When Larry got out of prison, he changed his mind and took his stuff back. I couldn't find out a lot about John and Robin. John seems to be pretty much his mother's son. One AA staffer said he was, quote, a big doofus <laughs> who, <laughs> who ran around the office yelling obscenities. In 1989, Texas Monthly Story John said, Most cause people think that part of being a dissenter is that you need to be poor or look poor. Madeline and I and Robin just don't fit into that role. We're accustomed to good food, to eating in dining rooms with tablecloths, good dishes, a good bottle of wine. Even when we go out for lunch, we go someplace nice. You'd never see us at McDonald's or Burger King. That's just not our lifestyle. All of us have nice clothes. My suits cost a minimum of five, $600. My shirts are custom made, my ties are all silk. We have a nice house in Northwest Hills, nice automobiles. We get a tremendous amount of flack over the fact that I drive a Mercedes, Madeline drives a Mercedes, and Robin drives a Porsche.
0: So do a lot of ministers.
1: We've been around the world three times. I kind of understand someone like Swagger, and he's talking about Jimmy Jimmy Swagger, (laughs) which you guys, if you're younger, might not. Yeah, he was a televangelist at the time. I understand why he has the mansion, the limos, the Rolexes, and so on. He's in with a particular set of folk, and he's got to compete. The people in his church are happy for him to do that. It's just the outsiders who don't understand.
0: Well, to tell you the truth there, I read somewhere once there was a study done about nonprofits that the wealthier your nonprofit looks and the people who run it look, the more money you generate. That's probably true.
1: So maybe he's right.
0: The other thing is he mentions Jimmy Swagger. This was right
1: before the scandal with Jimmy Swagger uh. with the prostitute because I was thinking (laughs) about that, and I remember it was about 1990. A lot of staffers did not like John as president of the organization. He alienated a lot of the chapters around the country. He had no personal skills and poor management skills. Mm. People said that Madeline still ran things anyway. I've worked for that guy. Uh, John was more of a follower. Madeline
0: still just didn't. Well, it must be hard, too, whether you're a doofus or not, when your mother has that much energy and personality and she's just a force of nature. It must really be hard unless you're really comfortable in your own skin, which Which he probably wasn't, because she was
1: overwhelming. And it's hard to know because people that worked with him and stuff, you know, they didn't like him very much. And, And some guys like, well, he tried to get a girlfriend once, but Madeline got rid of her pretty quick. So who knows? Who knows? So Robin was described as more sensitive. She edited AA's publications and managed the library. She wrote poems. And the American Atheist Press published a book of her poems in 1981. The title, The Tweetings of a Loose Robin. She could also be impatient and bitchy.
0: Well, All, joined the club.
1: I know. All I know. of them, the trio, yelled at staffers and each other. A former <laughs> staffer said they belittled everybody. They were always telling employees they were stupid, that they didn't know what they were doing. Well,
0: that's not And nice. you could always
1: hear the three of them yelling at each other and door slamming, which would probably happen to you know, yeah. any family. I've worked in family-run business before. Mm. All of them are like that. When you were out, you were out with Madeline. One former staffer said she contested his unemployment claim by saying he murdered some people and had sex with animals. But I don't think that should be a reason to not get unemployment. So here they are, the Marie O'Hares, Madeline, John, and Robin, going along together with their little dogs, always together, and suddenly they're gone. David Travis, a staffer at AA, tried to file a missing persons report in the spring of 1996. He was told by an Austin Police Department detective You can't report my lawnmower missing, meaning a family member had to do it, which is untrue. It took a year for someone to officially file a missing persons report, and it was Bill Murray who did it.
0: I've been intrigued by a lot of things I've been watching lately about what the rules around missing person reports are. We were
1: talking about that when
0: they were last. Right, and what happens when you do file one, and who's allowed to, and I know different states or departments have different rules. You wonder what happens... Once you file one, lots of times they don't even do anything. Uh, so what's the problem with just fi- letting uh, somebody file one?
1: It's untrue anyway. Yeah. And there is a good episode of the show Disappeared that's on ID. ID. Go. We watch it Go. on ID. So, yeah. Go. Yeah. And there's also a forensic file from 2002, but that one's not as good because they don't cover everything right that
0: uh, they go into the forensics
1: but the, uh, the disappeared episode is actually pretty good but th- there's a cop on there that's like well that's not too and i don't think anyone ever tried to file it's like bullshit
0: yeah it, how does the cop know if there's no well, record there's bullshit. also a documentary that i watched that's no longer available that was really good and it was by one of the reporters and an investigator oh yeah they were on that dis- dis- to, i'm coming well, to that. okay but i'm just saying that documentary isn't available anymore they had a lot of good stuff in it
1: um, Around this time, Robin's Porsche was found at Austin's Robert Mueller Airport. Is it named after Robert Mueller?
0: Possibly, because wasn't
1: he the head of the CIA? And he also is a war war hero. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll find out. Police found nothing suspicious about that, even though it's like friggin' year later and her Porsche is at the airport. Not much happened for a year. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't a year later. It was like six months later. The police didn't appear to ever have concern about it. In fact, in the spring of 1997, they released a statement that said, we've already given it more attention than a case of its type because of her notoriety. But there were those interested in the case. One of them was a young reporter from the San Antonio Express News, John McCormick. He was only 23 actually.
0: That's why he got the shit story that nobody yes. else wanted to do. He was
1: assigned the story about the one-year anniversary of the Murray O'Hara's disappearance. He started doing some investigating. He Good got, for him! He got hold of their American Atheist 1995 tax returns. He found documentation that showed the organization was missing over $600,000 from a trust fund that had been formed from bequest from people's wills.
0: So he actually did some real reporting.
1: There were also forms that showed Two hundred and sixty thousand dollars holdings in New Zealand government stock. A short time later, the Houston Chronicle reported that John Murray had sold his Mercedes to a San Antonio couple for fifteen thousand dollars cash.
0: Now, what, re- what paper? Was, what paper did
1: he oh. worked for? The San Antonio News. Express. See, oh, so what happened
0: right, So what happened is he did an actual story, and then somebody at the Houston Chronicle, the bigger paper, said, shit, they're beating us, we got to. But also that, the fact
1: that they had been missing for over a year, well, someone probably called and said, hey, John Murray. Right, oh, but yeah, I'm thinking it see. was spurred by the yeah, San Antonio so it was, it was spurred, reporter looking into it. It was into it, it was the anniversary. Right, because like, no, yeah, right, yeah.
0: nobody else was giving a yeah, shit until right. he wrote You're something. Right.
1: The $15,000 cash was $6,000 below the Blue Book value of the car. The buyer was a man named Mark Sparrow. He said he answered a classified ad and the owner was quote in a hurry to sell it. He described the seller, who identified himself as John, as about fifty, five foot nine, stocky light curly hair. This did not describe tall, six foot two, dark haired John. The signature on the title transfer did seem to be John's though.
0: And he would have been in his what, early forties?
1: forty. 40. Yeah. He was forty. Yeah. Robin was about 30, John was 40. I've seen some news reports say he was 41 and she was 31, so they're yeah, about right. that age. The car was parked at the Warren Inn, which was a motel-slash-apartment complex in northwest San Antonio. Fo John, I call him, delivered the car to Sparrow's office, and a man and a woman in a pickup truck picked him up. Later, Sparrow said that the couple in the truck could have been John and Robin. While all this was going on, John McCormick had teamed up with a private investigator named Tim Young. Tim Young specialized in finding people. He contacted McCormick because he thought that finding the Murray O'Harris would help him get publicity for his business. And as he put it in the episode of Disappeared, he said, it would be a feather in my Mm cap. They started with financial... Records and cell phone records, because John's cell phone was what they had used. And remember, this was the the early days of cell phone. But they figured out from the cell phone records where they were calling the tower, you know, activity that they were in somewhere in that area. They had like a one mile square of uh, San Antonio, northwest San Antonio. So that's where they were kind of focused on. In February of 1998, McCormick and Hall discovered that John had wired $600,000 from a New Zealand United Secularist of America account to a San Antonio bank by way of a New Jersey bank in the beginning of September, 1995. He then took the money to a jeweler near the Warren Inn and ordered $600,000 worth of gold coins. Krugerrands, American Eagles, and Canadian Maple Leafs. 100 pounds of gold coins. Wow. The wire transfer took weeks to go through, though. There were glitches with it. On September 29th, John went to pick up the coins. The jeweler, Corey Tickner, only had $500,000 worth. The other $100,000 was on the way. John took what he had. He never came back for the remaining $100,000. When he came in to pick up the coins, Tickner told police that he was, or he told, I think, McCormick and um Young, because Young, police didn't give a shit, right. that John, was, he was like kind of disheveled and he smelled really bad and like he hadn't showered and... He was like all, like his face was hadn't been shaven. It was also discovered that John had to fly to New Jersey on September 21st to clear up some kind of glitch in the wire transfer. He was with another man named Conrad Johnson, later found to be a fake name. Nightline did a story based mostly on McCormick and Young's discoveries that aired in June 1998, although Nightline took a lot of credit for even though it was McCormick and Young that did all the fucking work. Right. Around this time, John McCormick got a tip from a guy who saw the Nightline episode. The guy was talking about his brother who was also missing and had been since September 30th, 1995. His brother's name was Danny Fry. This guy thought his brother had something to do with the Murray O'Hare case. The last time that anyone had heard from him was when he called his daughter Lisa to wish her a happy 16th birthday on September 30th, 1995. His brother had danny had come from florida he had traveled to texas after getting a call from his friend david waters actually he said david walters but mccormick thought it could be david waters especially after he learned that fry had been staying at the warren inn where john's mercedes had been parked danny fry was a 42 year old salesman con man handyman etc he drank a lot and when he drank he liked to talk Mm. his daughter told police that her father had been lured to texas by waters who said he had a big deal going. Waters and Fry had been friends years before when Waters lived in Florida. Lisa said that her dad was not really stoked about going, and he, she had a, quote, disgusting feeling <laughs> as she drove him to the airport. He went July 1995. And, oh, and by the way, the brother mentioned that the reason he thought that it had something to do with the case is that he knew that Waters had worked for Madeline O'Hare. So he thought it was weird that they were a weird coincidence yeah. at the same time. And I think his brother may have said something. There's some more information from another brother later. I think that they knew something was going on. Yeah, there
0: was a lot about that in the documentary that you can't watch anymore. (laughs) (laughs)
1: He went to Texas in July 1995. At first he called often, first from Waters' apartment where he was staying, and then from a payphone at the Warren Inn. Near the end, the calls were fewer, shorter, and tenser. It was like he was sneaking calls to me, Lisa said. Two days after Fry's final call to his daughter, a man's body, missing a head and hands, was found on the banks of the Trinity River near, I think it's Seagoville, Texas.
0: I was just watching some true crime show. I can't even remember what. And the cop said, yeah, when it's missing a head, that's a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Yes.
1: For three years, the body lay in a pauper's grave unidentified. But when John McCormick got the tip about Danny Fry. He remembered the wire story about the body because the body was unidentified. Every time it came up, the anniversary came up, the cops would kind of do a press release, right? And he remembered. He remembered. Yeah, it. good for him. And and on a hunch, he called the sheriff and had a DNA test done. The reporter uh, some, had a DNA test. Yeah, he huh? called the sheriff and said, "Look, I think." Well, he said, "I think that that body." Right. And the, the sheriff's like, "We've been trying to solve it for three years, and we thought it might as well." See. and they did familial, you know, DNA. So, who was David Waters?
0: Who was David Waters? And what
1: was his connection to Madeline Murray O'Hare? In 1993, David Waters answered a one ad for a typesetter at American Atheists. He wrote later how he had, quote, visions of an environment rife with intellectual debate <coughs> and youthful philosophizing. Huh. It sounds boring. <laughs> but he claims all he did here was rumors of foreign accounts, and U.S. Marshals planning a raid. Waters told his story to Vanity Fair after the Hare Murray's disappeared, and as John McCormick said, he was trying to make the narrative certain in his own purpose. Even though he didn't work there anymore, kind of like sounded like he was speaking for the Murray O'Hares when he really wasn't. Um, And who
0: was there to counter what he said? Yeah.
1: Waters was well-spoken and outgoing, and Madeline took a liking to him. She ended up promoting him to office manager. He claims he poked around the office just to protect himself in case something illegal was going on. Right. At the same time, in 1994, Madeline was on trial for racketeering. In 1987, she had tried to take control of the Truth Seeker magazine, and was sued by them for $7 million. And it seems like a really complicated... I don't really know what the hell is yeah. going on. She was in the middle of this trial, and her health was failing. She was relying on a wheelchair because her legs were swollen from her, her high blood pressure and diabetes issues. So anyway, in 1994, $60,000 worth of bearer bonds were stolen from AA's Safe. Waters claims he found evidence. The family... He found these faxes and stuff to somebody that the family was planning to move overseas, transferring money overseas, um, asking people about fake IDs. While some of this is true, Waters made up a bunch of stuff in order to cover his own crimes. Waters said that in 1994, John Garth Murray approached him about helping hide $100,000 by cashing checks and sending the money to San Diego, where he, Madeline, and Robin would be on trial. John said he couldn't do it himself because he was being followed by private eyes hired by the truth seeker. Waters said he agreed to do it for $15,000. He said at John's instruction he laid off staff and cashed some checks. But then John stopped calling him. Then, according to Waters, he panicked and resigned. The Murray O'Hares called police and he was arrested for theft of about $54,000. He pled guilty to avoid a life sentence. Which he could have gotten as a habitual offender because he has, we'll talk about his other crimes later. He was given a deferred sentence and probation in order to pay back about $15,000. He apparently had those faxes and he's like, look, I thought something was going on and ended up with a plea deal. Madeline was not happy about the fact that he served no time for stealing from AA and her. Mm-hmm. She wrote a diatribe <laughs> in that american atheist newsletter detailing his past crimes and hinting that he was gay and had participated in gay sex in prison Mm. david waters was in fact a horrible person and a psychopath in 1964 he and three friends got into an argument with the fourth boy and beat him to death with a fence post oh he was sentenced to 30 to 60 years but served 12 in 1977 15 months after being released he pushed his mother down a flight of stairs, beat her with a broom handle, and urinated on her face.
0: How old would he would have been? Would he have um, been?
1: He was 17 when he
0: first went to prison. So he would have been 30. Yeah, about 30. What? The, you know, what's with the urinating on her face part, you know? One of the FBI agents on
1: the Disappeared episode said he was, quote, someone we all should be afraid of. Mm. I don't know, but then I read a Newsweek article about him in the 90s that said... He shoved his prostitute mother down the stairs and pissed on her face. I'm like, oh, that's a really nice way to put it, reporter. Yeah,
0: and also, going back to Vanity Fair, and usually they do a pretty good job of reporting, but if they're basing a whole article on one person's account of something, you'd think they would have done a little digging about who it was. And I didn't read, I have to admit, I did not read the article.
1: On September 16th, 1995, 11 days after John Murray... Sold his Mercedes for $15,000. And that's in quotes yeah. John Murray. the yeah. faux so John Murray. Yeah. David Waters bought a white Cadillac Eldorado for $13,000 <gasps> in cash. So that was 11 days later. In San Antonio. In 1998, John McCormick taped an interview with Waters by phone. The day before the story, he was going to publish a story about this car buying thing, this Eldorado buying. So he called David Waters, taped the interview with him. The day before it was published. And he asked Waters if he was ever in San Antonio in the September of 1995. Well, Waters is like, no, no, I don't think so. And McCormick's like, well, didn't you buy a car there? And he's like, oh, yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. And then he asked him if he had worked for American atheists. And he said, yeah, he had worked for them. And he said, well, what do you think happened? And Waters laughed and said it was obvious that they had taken off with the money and were living it up somewhere. And he was laughing the whole
0: time. (laughs) Um, I'd love to live it up somewhere. (laughs) McCormick
1: and Young discovered that the man who had purchased John's Mercedes, Mark Sparrow, had identified the mugshot of an ex-con named Gary Carr as the man who called himself John Murray. And I'm not sure who was showing him the mugshots. That was very unclear. Gary Carr had been in prison in Illinois with David Waters in the 1980s and had been in Florida in 1995 just before coming to Texas. He would just gotten out of jail. He had served 21 years for kidnapping, rape, and armed robbery. And I read somewhere Another else that Stalin he had kidnapped citizen. the judge's daughter. But, oh, I mean, God. He had been sentenced to 30 years, but he got out after 21. Danny Fry's other brother, Bob, I think the other one's name was Jim, wasn't it, told McCormick to that he had gotten a letter from Danny in the summer of 1995. The letter said that if he wasn't back by a certain date, that meant something serious had happened. I should contact authorities and bring in Dave Waters' name. That Dave Waters planned what we did. According to Bob Fry, he called Waters after Danny disappeared and told him that he had a letter from Danny that he hadn't opened yet. The next day, David Waters and another guy showed up in Florida demanding the letter. They left after Bob finally convinced them he had destroyed it. Bob said, the one thing that Waters said keeps haunting me. He said, your brother drinks a lot. He has a big mouth.
0: Oh, yeah. I was going to say earlier, drinking and committing crimes are bad combinations if you're a if you talky a drinker. Talk, yeah. yeah. In the May
1: 1999 Texas Monthly article, David Waters is quoted, I think atheism is arrogance. I consider myself an agnostic. I don't know that there's not a deity. If there is no God, if it's an invention of man, I still see a good reason for the concept of God. God and religion give a lot of people hope.
0: It's he should be arrogant. in prison
1: just for being a dick. <laughs> I know. A douchebag. He said, one reason I really like Texas is it truly is a whole new country. Waters told Texas Monthly he was the focus of the disappearance of the Murray O'Hares because of his past. He said he was frustrated and embarrassed to be suspected. Mm. Aw, he claimed he had invited Danny Fry to Austin, but never said anything about a big deal. He said Danny left Florida to disappear. Quote, Danny essentially disappeared as soon as he left Florida. Apparently, he had some felony things he was looking at over in Florida. He defrauded some old people in the condo scheme. He was talking about the economic situation in Austin, Texas. I told him this was the place to be. I said the unemployment rate is nil. I said, if you want to work, make a buck. This is the place to be. Mm. He said Danny Fry did stay at his apartment. As for Lisa Fry's accusations, Waters said, this is the same daughter who told me that this is not the first time Danny has done this, and that if I talk to Danny, to tell Danny to turn himself in and do his time, which she didn't ever say she does. He laughed off Bob Fry's story about the letter, saying, you mean the one that conveniently was destroyed? If I got a letter from my brother that suggested what this letter supposedly suggested, not only would I not destroy that letter, that letter would be in my safe deposit box. I have to say that I, he does have a point there.
0: Yeah, but people don't always do the smart thing with shit. And also, if you got a letter like that from one of your siblings, would you immediately say, I'm going to put this in a safe deposit no. box? No, you'd probably say, oh, this is a little odd, and you'd put it somewhere in your house or yeah, something, right? who knows?
1: About the ex-con from Illinois that McCormick had reported about, Waters said, I've got a hunch that just about anyone I do know, once McCormick finds out I know him, or have had any affiliation with him, is somehow going to come to the forefront here. Waters accused John McCormick, who he called his nemesis, (laughs) of having tunnel vision. I think there's a number of things he has probably come across that he's put out of the way because they do not coincide with what his theory is. If I were John McCormick, too, I would be
0: scared. Yeah, maybe that. he was.
1: David Waters said he had nothing to do with the family's disappearance. He said the faxes he discovered, showing money transfers, etc., cetera, approved it, and apparently he showed the faxes to Vanity Fair, too, that gave him credibility with right. him again.
0: He was oh, e- you could easily manufacture fake facts. I
1: know. He was even shopping around a book about his time at American Atheists. He had a ghostwriter-slash-agent. Huh. <laughs> He said Madeline had me pegged as a fall guy from day one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Waters claimed all the evidence against him was circumstantial. He implied by that that he was being right, set up. Yeah. And if he had five hundred thousand dollars, where was it? He said he still owed Harry Preston, the agent slash ghostwriter, twenty five hundred of his five thousand dollars fee for the book. He was <laughs> at risk of going to jail because he couldn't afford the two hundred dollars. Dollar monthly restitution payments to American atheists. His ex-girlfriend, Lisa Grumbles, <laughs> I know, who dated Waters in the fall of 1998, said he is very conservative with money. If he had a lot of money, he wouldn't have kept that old Camaro. The Camaro died, so Waters was using a bicycle. He said he lost his job because of the newspaper stories about him. He was about to get evicted for not paying rent. He said, quote, I'm trying to keep a positive mental attitude but I seem to be going down the tubes. I wish I had about a half a million dollars to dip into. Why does everybody think I'm going to get arrested? And who doesn't wish they had $500,000? Yeah,
0: I could use it.
1: In March of 1999, the FBI searched Waters' apartment and found 119 rounds of handgun ammunition. They must have gotten a tip or something. They don't say why they searched mm-hmm. it. They must have gotten a warrant somehow. As a convicted felon, he was not allowed to be in possession of firearms or ammunition. Because of his criminal history, he was denied bail. The FBI also found a bunch of American atheist documents and stuff he shouldn't have had, but they found no evidence that linked him to the Murray O'Hare's disappearance. A few days later, Gary Carr was in jail in Michigan, also on weapons charges. There was evidence linking him to the crime. David Waters made sure Gary's name was on anything that could be used as evidence. When confronted with this evidence, Gary started talking. Mm. He said that David did everything. He did. He's like, I didn't know he was going to kill him or anything like
0: that. Yeah, they always say that. As
1: Texas Monthly pointed out, it wasn't Austin Police who investigated or solved this crime. John McCormick and Tim Young solved it. The FBI and the U.S. Marshals investigated. But they only became interested when Danny Fry's body was identified. Mm -hmm. Then they actually... In 2000, Gary Carr was found guilty of conspiracy to commit extortion, traveling interstate to commit violent acts, money laundering, and interstate transportation of stolen property. He was acquitted of conspiring to kidnap because the bodies of Madeline, John, and Robin had not yet been found. He was sentenced to two life sentences. Also in 2000, David Waters was convicted of kidnapping, robbery, and homicide in the Murray O'Hare case and sentenced to 80 years in prison. He was also ordered to pay back about $543,000 to the United Secularists of America and the estates of Madeline Murray O'Hare, John Murray, and Robin O'Hare. David Waters did not want to spend the rest of his life in a Texas state prison, so he agreed to a deal in which he would show authorities where the bodies were buried as well as tell them what happened if he could serve time in a federal prison instead. In March 2001, he led them to a ranch in Real County, about 90 miles west of San Antonio. When the remains were discovered, forensic experts said the legs had been sawed off and the bodies burned before being buried. They also found Danny Fry's head in hands.
0: Oh, there you They're go. Looking for those. The I bo- shouldn't laugh the I know.
1: The bodies were identified by dental records and the serial number on Madeline's artificial hip joint. David Waters told the FBI what happened. He and his two accomplices, Gary Carr and Danny Fry, kidnapped the family at gunpoint and brought them to the Warren Inn. David Waters told John he wanted the money, and once they had the cash, they would convert it to untraceable gold coins, and they would let everybody go. He said he just wanted the money. But the wire transfer of the money was messed up and took weeks longer than anticipated. While they were holed up, they played card games, watched TV, and did go out to eat and stuff on occasion. Madeline actually, the people from the restaurant across the street said she had eaten there. Mm. John especially could come and go. The day they got the five hundred thousand dollars in gold coins, Waters and Carr and Fry killed John first. It was like two rooms it was in the a bathroom. Suite, yeah. yeah, two held him down while one strangled him with a belt. Then Carr and Waters went into the other room and strangled the two women. Carr killed Robin. Waters killed a Madeline. They drove the bodies to a self-storage unit in Austin. Waters offered Carr fifteen thousand dollars extra to dismember the bodies, which he did.
0: Ah, a pro tip. If you know who they are and they're doing a crime like this and they say they're going to let you go, but you can identify them, they're not going to let is, you is go. Especially when
1: you're Madeline O'Hare.
0: But that's the whole thing about... Is she going to, like, be quiet? No. Right.
1: He went into the storage unit and did
0: it. And the forensic file says how they found, like,
1: one drop of blood yeah, or something. That documentary,
0: um, apparently, one of them, I can't remember which one, frequently assaulted Robin, sexually assaulted Robin. I'm
1: sure he did. Yeah. I'm sure he was. Yeah, I bet it was Carr. Yeah, it was. It, like yeah, the, yeah,
0: I think it was Carr, yeah. yeah. Seems
1: like the yeah. one that would do it. Maybe
0: that will become available again. I hope so. Yeah. Uh-huh. He went
1: in the unit and did the deed, cut him up, while Waters and Fry waited outside. See, Waters was smart. He kept away from everything. Right. Waters noticed that Fry was freaking out a little bit. He did. <laughs> they put the bodies into oil drums. As I said before, oil drums, the second the second most common use of oil drums right. for bodies, and went to look for a place to get rid of them. On the way they stopped in a forested area and the three went in the woods on the pretense of finding a burial spot. Waters shot Danny Fry in the head. Mm. Gary Carr cut off Danny's
0: head and hands. Gary loved that dismembering. I know. He was kind of the... the sicko. Well, I if, was going to say he was kind of the expert at the dismemberment. Yeah. If you're a smart guy like Waters and you're going to do something like that, you need a sicko psychopath Doing it with you to do all the shit. Yeah. That's especially the shit that's gonna shed DNA DNA. and stuff. Yeah.
1: You know, if you get at something. Poor Danny Fry,
0: his number they can. Just like you love,
1: and the money will follow. Yeah, that's
0: right. Poor Danny Fry. So
1: they say they tossed the body in the river and took the head and hands with them to the ranch in Real County. They set the bodies on fire before covering them up with dirt. One of the oddest things about this story is that the killers and the victims spent a month in two rooms sharing a bathroom. A lot of people wondered how they managed to keep them from going to the police. Tim Young and John McCormick say that David Waters dealt solely with John. John trusted David. Why? Because John was a follower. He had spent his life following his mother. She was a very strong person, and Mm -hmm. he had no friends. He had no personal skills, and he had absolutely no friends. David. He sounds like he was very manipulative. He was a
0: charming. Yeah.
1: Madeline was kind of a sociopath herself. But she wasn't any match for... She was an intellectual sociopath, not a
0: violent criminal sociopath. She
1: had narcissistic tendencies and was a hard person in some ways, I'm sure. I'm sure she had good qualities, too. She was very smart. But she also was a hard person to get to know, and I think that she used people. And But also, David Waters, there's a quote from her in that Playboy interview where she says something about I want a man who's, she wants someone who's manly and smart and blah, blah, blah. Hmm. And he's kind of like that. He has that smart talk about him. Which is
0: why she had those contradictory descriptions of her husband O'Hare. He was somebody she could stand up to, who would stand up to her. So she didn't want a doormat. So I think that part of that,
1: David Waters knows how to manipulate people. He manipulated her to get his job, you know, to get her trust, and he ripped them off and he did apparently really want revenge on her after she wrote that mm. article about him. Yeah, you don't him. piss
0: off a psychopath. But
1: John, like I said, he had no friends. These guys probably made him feel like one of the guys and he was probably scared too, but he was able to placate Madeline, but I think Madeline was probably knew she was going to die.
0: And also there's always as long as you're alive, there's always hope and that's why a lot of people in situations like this, not that there's a lot of situations like this, Do what the people want. They don't go to the police. They think, okay, as long as we go along with them, maybe they're telling the truth and they will let us Well, you have
1: hope. But I wonder, too, how sick. She could have been really, really sick by then. Right. And and been too weak to even argue about. Right. I mean, if she had severe diabetes, and depending on how it was being treated, I think they did, one of the things they found was that they had called pharmacies with the phone, so they thought she was getting medication. But she might not have been. Right. And maybe they pretended to get it to placate the and other And there's two. other
0: things besides when you're as sick as she is with high blood pressure and diabetes, there's other things besides your medication that play into yeah. how you feel and how you're
1: healthy. And um, as for the $500,000 in mm-hmm. gold coins, what happened to that? Mm-hmm. Well, David Waters and his girlfriend at the time, not Lisa Grumbles, another <laughs> one, rented a storage unit. I don't think it was the same one that they cut people up, but maybe it was. They only secured it with a regular padlock. And they put all the gold coins in it. So some thieves came through the storage facility one night, breaking into units and stealing the contents. Oh, what a And imagine the their delight. They found those
0: gold I coins. I hope they realized what they had.
1: Well, they spent it all. The only one that was uh, remaining, they thought, was one that somebody made into a pendant.
0: So just so I'm clear on the timeline, so they got John Murray to get the coins, and then, yes. then he was all smelly and, that, and disheveled. And that was the and 29th they killed, of September. Right, and then they killed that them. That day. And then they put them in the storage no unit. No one what? knew about
1: the gold coins. I mean, nobody at AA right. knew about
0: the gold right. coins. Right, but they put the them in the storage unit to, what, wait till things cool yeah. down? Or Okay. I believe that it was shortly after
1: the killing happened that they were stolen, and he couldn't, I mean, what's he going to do? You can't report them. It served his story to say, I don't have any money. Yeah. Because I mean, he would have spent it if he hadn't. Yeah. There are a couple interesting quotes to end with. One is from a woman from the 1970 Phil Donahue show, the chaplain of Bourbon Street, Bob Harrington, asked the audience if they thought Madeline could be saved.
0: <laughs> and a bunch
1: of people said yes. They said, has she gone too far? And I, I'm like, well, can you go too far? I thought anyone could be saved. But anyways, so there were some people that raised their hand that she couldn't be saved. And Phil asked this woman to stand up and said, well, why do you think she can't be saved? And she said, well, maybe she can, but this is her quote. If she isn't saved before she dies, I would like to have it published, How She Died, because I believe that she will die such a miserable death that it will convince all those who follow her that she was wrong. Mm. And the woman said she hoped Madeline would be saved, to which Madeline said, I don't want to be saved.
0: And also, that woman's quote shows a fundamental misunderstanding of atheism. I know. That people who are atheists who are following Madeline Murray O'Hara are just atheists and aren't going to say, oh, her horrible death was... God's retribution. They're going to say, wow, she died a horrible death, probably because of society's, in a lot of ways, reaction to who well, she Well, her son's like, well,
1: atheists killed her. It's like, no, they weren't really atheists. Well, then they, were, atheists. they were Well, scumbags. He, they were
0: scumbags and opportunists. Yeah. And it's also funny in that audience that nobody asked, do you think Mr. Harrington will ever see the light and realize there was no God? Well, Madeline did. But but what I'm saying yeah, is I it know. comes from this assumption that everybody believes in God, that there is a God, and she's the one who needs to be saved.
1: And that's the thing. A lot of the clips you'll see of her, she's, a comp, she's confident that she is right. And she's like, what? Yeah. So this last quote I just thought was very, it was from the 1989 Texas Monthly article by Lawrence Wright, the one that says, may God help her or whatever. God help her. I thought this quote was quite interesting, and I circled it she says quote i do think we're in a steady retreat there's an absolute steady retreat into what i call a neo-fascism but it's really old-time fascism into a robber baron society and a religiously dominated society and that's not cyclical because they have new weapons at hand now mainly communications technology which they can rapidly disperse ideas
0: mhm
1: that's interesting. How pristine of her! Yes, yes. is We
0: are in a neo fashion. society. And it's funny. No matter what article or documentary or whatever you see about Madeline Marie O'Hare, it's impossible to separate her personality from the issues, and it makes it difficult for people to understand where she was coming from. I think because I, I think
1: that she's given a short shrift a lot of times in a lot of interviews. It really depends on the situation like there are a lot of interviews on YouTube of her on the PBS there was like a PBS late night show and I can't remember the host but she's on there a lot there was a lot of YouTube and she's very well spoken well she's always well spoken but she is calmer oh, um because she's
0: frequently
1: goaded yeah, into, I know. You know and she does get angry sometimes is she uh, she's a complicated person right. she's not a sweet little thing. She obviously always been a strong minded woman and someone that speaks bluntly and she speaks
0: her mind and she's but you will kinda of wonder and I wondered this when I watched that documentary that I wish I could remember the name of there were some rights issues or something, I think that it was taken out of circulation. It had been on Netflix. Uh, I know I saw it. I couldn't get but, yes, I saw it there and I couldn't But in I any case when I first watched that in last year or something, I wondered if she and her son and granddaughter had, instead of been head of the American Atheists, had been head of some church, if there would have been more interest in finding out what happened to them by the police, and if there would have been more of a effort to report them missing. And, you know, the fact that they were killed had nothing to do with religion no. or the religion. It had to do with a bunch of scumbags robbing them and stealing their money. Yeah. But... The lack of interest in finding out what happened, you know, and people can, you know, blame her, blame the way she lived her life and the whatever kind of isolation, although part of that was because people don't want to be around atheists.
1: If but, she was the same person with the same personality that, say, they had a family business, an oil business or something, right. and were all kidnapped
0: that way, there would have been... Right. Or if she had run a church.
1: Yeah, I mean, if a person's running a church, they're a cult leader, so right. they might not care, like no, David Koresh. No,
0: if, no, I'm not saying a cult like David Koresh. I'm saying a cult like, let's say it was some you know, Protestant fundamentalist oh, yeah. church okay. where she was a minister yeah. of a church, yeah. you know.
1: Like a Joel Osteen type? Yeah,
0: or something like that. It's,
1: I'm an atheist, and I'm, but I've never been, I'm not... An activist? Yes. That's the worst. I do believe in the separation of church and state. Yeah. I would protest something like that. I'm not going to join an organization. Well, I'm too lazy.
0: it's in my town. One thing about Maine is that people may have strong opinions and stuff, but people tend to be polite and not want to get involved in things. And there's a couple people in my town that just hate the library. Hate, 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 hate the library. In fact, the librarian just resigned. The third librarian in five years resigned. But their latest ploy was to try to force her to accept a Bible for the library's collection. Now, there is no Bible at the library right now, and the American Library Association and the Maine Library Association has guidelines. If you have a Bible, you should have books representing six other major religions, and they actually have a list and you of like 24 books, blah, 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 well, of course, the people don't want that. So they're, they're kind of using that as yeah. a way to attack the library. But I'm actually was asked to become a member of library trustees because I was saying, you know, I was kind of trying to explain actually the first amendment to some people <laughs> about it. And I figure you got to put your money where your mouth is and get involved in this. And um meanwhile, this guy also just wants to get rid of the library or cut the librarian's hours so we don't have a full-time librarian. And so it's a long story. But it's not something I normally would have getting, gotten involved in when I was a newspaper journalist. I couldn't have, because yeah. when you're covering the stuff, even though the paper isn't, you can't be involved. But I just thought, you know, it's not a matter of what you believe in religiously. It's a matter of what you believe in constitutionally. And I was in the library before she resigned. And there was another guy in there, and we were talking about it. And the guy was like, well, you know, it's not like we have any Muslims in our town. And I said, first of all, you don't know that. Second of all, it's you don't have books about religion or the Bible. You don't have the Bible and everything. For the people who who are that religion, you probably have a Bible at home. You have the information in the library so people who want to find out more can access it. And I also mentioned that there was a pew... Um, research study, it was probably about 10 years ago, about just your knowledge of religion. And atheists scored higher. Of course. Than any other. And my, um, you know, we were raised Catholic. We went to Catholic school. I went to a Jesuit college where they taught us to be critical thinkers. And I was already wavering anyway, but the big thing, you know, people always look for, with Madeline Murray O'Hare, what's the thing that made her an atheist? And there's no one thing, it's how you think. Yeah. But, In 2011, I was contracted by a publisher to write this book, The Afterlife Survey, where I was supposed to interview, I think, as many as 30 people from different religions and walks of life and stuff about their views of the afterlife, and that process just put me right over the edge to atheism. And I won't go into the whole thing, but part of it is so many people believe so many different things. Yeah. And some of them are just in direct conflict with other things. And I know it sounds simplistic to say, well, who's right? But it makes you realize the deeper thing is people want something to explain what they're doing here and what's going to happen. And they want also simple moral rules. Yeah. Although a lot of people who follow the moral rules of religion claim to, they don't in their actions, even though the Bible, that quote from... General mm-hmm. about your deeds that yeah, he supposedly said. And I won't get into a big religious thing, but just that atheism is really misunderstood. And when I was in that discussion in the library about talking about what you needed to have, the guy who said we don't have any Muslims also said, well, you know, we don't have any books on atheism. And I said, everything in here is a book on atheism <sighs> because atheism isn't a religion. Atheism. It's it, lack no of religion. Lack no of religion. We could have a book explaining atheism, but it's not it's represented in everything that's know. not religious some people don't get that it's
1: so stupid. you know i know it's like it's not a belief in something it's just that i do not believe i just yes. gradually came to it in my 20s i'm like you know what it was just gradually and then i was just like i just no. Well, I people just, don't, don't want
0: to. Don't. People don't want to consider the abyss of nothingness, so they. Well, need. they. I think people
1: are uncomfortable. They're afraid. They're very. uncomfortable. And they're uncomfortable with the fact that they might not know. Like they don't like the idea of what's going to happen when right. I die. I don't know.
0: It's like. And, eh, it and the, bad. the, the you thing know so. that always bothers me is when people imply that to have morals and to yeah. do the right thing, you need religion. My feeling is. If you do the right thing, not because you're afraid you're gonna to go to heaven or hell or God's gonna smite you, but because it's the right thing to do because you're a human being and yeah. other people are human beings. You know, you're not you are gonna... amoral just because you I don't know. have a religion. That... It's interesting too how the whole like when the whole thing with Madeline Marie O'Hare happened and when her murder was first discovered, it made the news. But it's not as well known as you would think it no, is. No, I and forgot
1: I, a lot about it. And I do think it's fact. because
0: of how she's regarded in the And she was
1: pretty well known in the 60s and 70s. Oh, she she was, was well known. Yeah.
0: Everyone knew who she was. Well, the most hated yeah. woman in America. That's right.
1: That's, um, Life magazine called her that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and there's
0: a Netflix movie. Yeah, which I did Melissa not of.
1: watch yeah. because, I, as I've said before. Well,
0: they're not documentaries. Yeah,
1: I don't like biopics. I really I don't. don't. I in find, fact, it's uh, funny. Very, no matter
0: how. How well-acted they are, I can In fact, it's funny, driving down here, I was listening to the latest Real Crime Profile interviewed the first wife of Dirty John, man, and she was talking about the Bravo show with Connie, Connie Bratton. Bratton. She wasn't complaining, but like Laura Richards was asking her stuff, and she, Tanya, the first wife, was like, well, this is what happened in real life. In the Bravo show, they show blah, 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 and Laura Richards would say, well, didn't he blah, 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 and she said, no, that was on the Bravo show, <laughs> but it didn't happen in real life. And as much as I like Connie Britton, it makes me not want to watch. No, her. I know. But apparently there's a two-hour documentary on Oxygen. I don't know if I can get that streaming. Well, I did see the Dateline. I know, or but 48 hours. Anyway, but in any case, thank you. That I thought that was very, uh, very interesting. Ugh. A lot of stuff people. There was know. a
1: lot of background. And the one thing that I didn't, I should have mentioned it a little more. There is a fork. I mean, we didn't talk about Danny Fry that much. His right. daughter felt
0: that he was forgotten poor guy and it is sad and if i ever get killed though
1: it will be because of my big mouth me too one way or another
0: hey i've lost jobs because of it i've lost money because of it i I feel you danny yeah and i don't even have to be drunk yeah i know it's like in that bruce springsteen song the promise i learned a secret i should have kept to myself but i got drunk one night and i told it every time i hear about the funny i think of that we know yeah and you haven't seen Bruce. I know. I, I, he need to be in the right frame of mind. It's very good. I know. I've read his biography. You no, know, even, and passing Bruce almost thirty times. Pat Bonson told me that he didn't wasn't a fan of Bruce, but because I recommended it, he watched uh, it. Okay. I just have impressed. to be in the right frame of mind to watch it. But speaking of which, we do have some recommendations. <laughs> This is uh, what I was originally gonna do and not, but I just wanna say I've been wa- binge watching an ID go stalked. <laughs> I don't wanna <laughs> Someone's watch that. Watching. it, man comfortable. Well, it, i find it interesting because part of it is the book I'm writing now has his has a coercive control kind of angle. So I you know, I like to get ideas from watching True Crime. But I'll just say it's really funny. Like it's it's kind of a low budget show and the reenactments like the, oh. they're bad. And I'll, I'll rate it at some point. But the cops, like, their uniforms don't fit. And, like, there's this one scene on one of them where a cop comes to the people's house. But he's got, like, this long, like, lank, greasy hair and a mustache. Mm. And he's in this ill-fitting cop uniform. And it's, it's kind of weird. But hmm. what I am going to rate I know is, a, never is a documentary that just, I think it just appeared on Netflix. They I just, haven't seen it on just, my
1: list yet, so i got to watch it. They just
0: it. added. They helpfully send me emails saying we added the documentary. Oh, and it's called Abducted in Plain Sight. Mm. And I wonder I thought, what that's about. And I thought to myself, ooh, this will be just, like, stocked only <laughs> uh, only 90 minutes. What it is, it's a true crime documentary about Jan Brobert or something like that. It's it's funny because her father's name is Bob. The bad guy's name is Bob. His last name is, like, Brechtold or something. Their last name is Brobert or something. It's, so there's a lot of, if you're writing a book, you couldn't have wow. those similar names. But she was not abducted once by this guy, but twice. Ah! And I don't want to spoil a lot of it, but there will be a little bit of spoiler, just because there's some stuff I have to talk about. He became fixated with her. He groomed not only her, but her parents, and tried to destroy their marriage. And I won't go into the details of what he did, but it's more than what you would even think he would do. But one of the things he did, and this is a spoiler, but I'm going to say it anyways, he convinced this young girl that who looked at him like a father he really ingratiated himself with the family huh. and everything he told the parents he was bringing her horseback riding and then he when he took her he this was the first time drugged her and she woke up in this mobile home he has and he had this it wasn't really a tape recorder it was some kind of voice box with these contorted voices on them that convinced her that they had been abducted by aliens and that her younger sister would go blind and her father would yeah. be talking about all this stuff if she didn't yeah. help. How old is she? Like 12? 12. Okay. So if she didn't help have a child, because she was part alien, oh, if geez. she didn't, and so was Bob. And it even made her go to him and suggest sex. So he was very calculating. Oh. And I won't go into every. Oh. You have to watch it. But in any case, Bad Reenactments. I'm going to take away half a point. There are reenactments. This happened in the early 70s, and they are true to fashion and stuff. The people don't talk a lot, except for the aliens. I'm um,
1: <laughs> okay. You I know, it's that. the kind of That's thing where like, people
0: talking and they're showing the reenactments as the person's talking. The issue I have is I think they rely too heavily on them. And also, this family took a lot of home movies. And at the beginning, you're almost like a little confused because they're showing this home movie stuff and then they start showing the reenactment well, yeah. and with the reenactment they actually did like the streaky thing oh, so it looks like... I've seen some that do that Yeah. And, and it's one thing to do that if you're not also showing home movies Yeah. but there needs to be more delineation. I mean, obviously when they're showing him abducting all this stuff you realize... They, Almost look, always the reenactments aren't necessary but that's that They much. aren't... They had enough stuff here that they didn't need them. Narrative cliches, it's the people talking, some of them... Especially the older people are cliche-ish. They don't understand in a lot of ways what happened and that type of thing. And so I'm not going to take away any points because there's no narrator. There's no... Well, that's good. There is words like in a lot of things which helps move the story along. Racial gender obtuseness, no black people, no, no people of any other race. And in its own way, as I said, that is its own type of obtuseness. But if it's a true story, yeah. You, know, yeah, you know... Gender obtuseness, yes, in that... And I'm going to take away a half a point. Yes, in that, she was a 12-year-old girl, but there were things people said, and I know, you know, it was their narrative, that assume things... Yeah, a 12-year-old girl does not have a sexual relationship no. with a 40-year-old man. She's oh. being molested or abused yeah. or assaulted by a 40-year-old man. Yeah, it's not... and. I think there was kind of, I understand certain people's points of views, but I think with some of the people there was a lack of understanding, even this old FBI guy that got involved, a lack of understanding about, you know, when they're telling the story to the documentarians, how you term those things. So I'm taking away half a point. Lack of good visuals. Um, There were good visuals. They had home movies. They had photos, a lot of photos of her and her family of the guy you know, it wasn't just the reenactments. You saw what the people looked like. Mm-hmm. You saw photos of the family. They did a good job of using them when they were talking about certain things. So no points away. Missing pieces, I'm gonna take away a point. Ooh, point. The story is told well, but first of all, he, the molester Bob Berthold or whatever his name was, moved with his family next door to this family. And this family had three little girls. Jan was the oldest. And then she had a sister who was a couple of years younger, and then another sister who was a couple of years younger than that. And they talk about the kids getting together and all this. But they never say what gender his kids were, what age they were. They hmm. never show a picture with them in it. Not that that's, like, a big part of the story, but you need it for the context of his involvement with Jan. Like, his family brought her with them on a trip to Seattle and stuff like that. They hmm. lived in... Pocatello, Idaho, it helps you understand, is this really weird Yeah. or is this normal? Everybody talks about him having this fixation on her and everything, but you kind of wonder what was going on with his own kids, and were his own kids in danger from him because he was a pedophile. And Speaking of which, back to the obtuseness, his brother talks sometimes, but even his brother talks about pedophilia and this, like, well, I guess he was in love with her and she was in love with him, even though he was a pedophile kind of thing. You're a 12-year-old girl, you can't be in It's like Mary-Kayla Turner. Another missing piece, which is just my thing, it's not necessarily a fault of the documentary, but they were all members of the LDS church, and I'm not knocking that particular church or anything, but I wondered, it would have been interesting to know, when people are really, really, really into a religion, is it easier for them to believe something? If you're a kid... And and it's, it would have been the same thing with us when you're steeped in a religion yeah. as a kid, and some things about religion are kind of fantastical. Is it easier? And to you're hate? also taught not to question. You're things. part alien, right? And she was a good girl, and and you know what it was like in Catholic school when yes, you asked questions. Oh, I certainly do. I got in a lot of trouble for asking questions. The other missing piece is a more obvious contextual thing, which is there's not a lot of context about this guy's psychopathy, why he would do this, how a 12-year-old girl and her family, big time, would be duped by this guy, and I can't even tell you. It's fascinating Ooh. how this guy operated. I really, I... i to watch it. Yeah, you have to watch it, because what he did with this family will blow your Ooh. mind. But... It would have been nice if there had been, as much as I bitch about talking heads, somebody to talk about psychopathy and how easy it is to manipulate people. Because I've got to tell you, I'm watching this, and I'm like, these people, are <sighs> uh, these parents I even texted you, have got to be the stupidest people in the world. And in some ways, they were really obtuse. <laughs> like, the first time he kidnapped her, and this isn't that much of a spoiler, it was five days before they reported her missing, even though he was just taking her horseback riding. And the mother said, well, have her home for dinner. It was five days because he was Bob, their friend, their next-door neighbor. He loved their kids. He wouldn't do anything. But And I'm thinking, well, what about, okay, don't think Bob did anything, but maybe they're in a car accident or something happened. I know, I know. But there was no, like, you can be watch tons of shit like we do about this type of thing and kind of be aware, but if you're just watching this out of the blue, you're like, so what? Why did this guy do this? Why did the girl go along? Why did the parents? And there's no, so that's why I'm taking away. A point. Yeah, Inaccuracy and anachronisms. Not really. The reenactments were not anachronistic. There was, I would say, almost reverse, like the FBI agent people in the guy's brother and stuff today, still having some old fashioned ideas about behavior and stuff, but I wouldn't take any points away for that. Storytelling, it does a good job of telling the story. It doesn't lay it all out there. It builds up. It builds up the guy's relationship with the family, and then once the stuff happens, it starts kind of deconstructing what was going on. They do a good job of that. Freshness, yes. I mean, you're talking to a person who's just watched like 33 (laughs) episodes of stalked. Somebody's watching, and this guy was a stalker. And what's interesting is he's a guy who didn't have to use physical violence. And it's just a story that will, it really will blow your mind in the just the calculated sickness of this guy and his ability to manipulate these people. The girl, her parent, well, the woman now, she's like your age. She was born in the mid-60s. Her parents, her two sisters are all interviewed. The FBI agent is interviewed. So it has that oh, but it's it's way beyond just another stalked or kid abducted story and one thing that kind of relieved me and i i've learned this from watching stalked when the victim is kid. one of the talking heads at the beginning you're like oh good at least i didn't die because yeah. like when i'm watching stock now i know if they're not one of the talking heads lots of times they were killed but um <laughs> repetition no there are things that are repeated little reenactment scenes and stuff but like the things we talked about last episode they're repeated in a way that reinforces things or gives you a different perspective on things and they do a good job beating the drum not at all they didn't need to and as we have said in these things where there isn't a voiceover narration beating the drums a lot less i'm finding yeah 48 hours mainly dateline not as bad you get a lot of beating the drum. Yeah. Overall, it got eight points. Ooh. Don't let the points I've taken away dissuade you at all. Yeah, You know, I was on the fence about watching it because I've been watching so many stocked episodes, and I'm like, okay, this is just another <laughs> thing. But I also am interested in this topic right now. When you watch it, you're just going to be mind blown. So, so abducted, yeah, like abducted in plain sight, eight points wow. on Netflix.
1: Watch it. Alright, mine is going to also be Netflix, but it's gonna be a fiction one. Ooh. And I don't know why, I think I just wanted something different. Usually my go-to thing is true crime. I always that, watch true like, crime shit. Yep. Or like a house. Thing. House renovation. Thing. Yeah. So I instead decided I was going to watch The Haunting of Hill House, which Ooh. is 10 episodes, I think they're about, an, I don't know if they're about an hour each, maybe 50 minutes each. I, figured well you know i'll try if i if i don't like it i'll keep watching it which i have done with some shows yeah i had never read the shirley jackson book but this does not from what i've read of descriptions have much in common with it except maybe the title even though it's supposedly based on the book it says in the beginning it it really isn't i think some of the characters names might be the same i think they
0: just liked the title
1: (laughs) it's about this family that is in this house renovating it, and it's haunted basically, and so it goes back and forth from the childhood it happened in like nineteen ninety two or something, and then modern day. They have them as children and as adults in modern day, and they switch back and forth ban reenactments obviously that's not uh relevant, but I will say the acting was very, very good from all the actors
0: who's in it anybody we would know
1: um the guy, I think he was in Game of Thrones. He's British, but he wasn't in this. But he was also in that Guernsey Book Club movie. You didn't see that? Oh,
0: no. he's so cute. Oh really? Because when I first told you I was gonna watch it, you rolled your eyes at me, but then I've never watched. And it. then I did watch it. <laughs> and the guy's so, so he's he's super cute,
1: but he plays a total douchebag in this. But the I thought the acting from all the people in the show was good, including the children, especially the two youngest children were very, very good actors. So narrative cliches, no, even though it could have them, you know, it's kind of a family drama as well as being How many a kids? ghost story. There are five children. The youngest are twins, a boy and a girl. Racial gender obtuseness. Actually no, the family is white and waspy the second oldest sister she's a funeral director mortician or whatever is married to an asian guy the younger sister the twin is married to a black guy and the um middle sister is gay and her girlfriend is wow. asian so they hit all the marks everyone's just you know there's not a big deal about things they just are what they are a lack of good visuals no, I wouldn't take off a point for that. It's very well filmed. And also, I will say, and I don't know where I would put this, but I'll put it in here maybe for visuals. Missing pieces? No. When you're watching it, you got to watch it all the way through. You might feel like there are some because it is a thriller and a haunted house story and. And it's got a story, it's going through the storyline. So you might say, wait a minute, what about blah, blah, blah. But you have to wait till the end. Well, oh, that's things good. Come clear. good, clear. Yeah. Inaccuracy, anachronisms. Even though it went back to 1992, there wasn't much of a chance for them to have any, because they're in that house all the time, anytime they're flashing back. So it's an old house that they're fixing up. So it's not like there was much they could, you could be like, hey, that didn't happen storytelling I thought it was pretty good like I said it moved around and because even in the present there was some some of the timeline where it, it went back a few months there's one character that's in rehab it was confusing for a minute, if you pay attention, they have a little plaque or, you know, a little, you know, words that say when things were like oh, okay. six months before. Or Did whatever. you have
0: trouble keeping who the characters no. were from child? No, who not at all? all. Not
1: at all. The children actors looked very much like their oh,
0: adult like counterparts.
1: <laughs> I mean, very much, it was very good casting. The two little twins, they're like six years old. So Elizabeth Reeser, she's probably the one you would know the most plays the oldest daughter, but she's the second, and then the Game of Thrones guy, who sorry people who are I can't I've remember. Name. She's really cute, but he does play a douche. And um the uh middle girl, her name's Katie Siegel. I think she's the daughter of the one, who, the one from Married with Children. Yeah. She looks a lot like her. They're all good. The acting is very good, especially given the subject matter, there's not a lot of you know, overacting and stuff. Right. I thought it was good.
0: Freshness, yeah. You know, it's haunted house, but it's not too gory or anything. How does it stack up against, I mean, do you know... Some people thought it
1: was really scary. I didn't think mm-hmm. it was that scary. And someone I work with was like, oh, my friends saw it and said he almost pissed As it far out. as,
0: like, freshness, though, as far as, like, compared to other haunted... I think it's fresh, yeah, it's good. It does doesn't it?
1: rely on a lot of gore and stuff like that. Well, it's, I mean, it's pretty scary. is the
0: story it's telling one yeah. you've seen before? I don't before. know, it's a haunted story. I, I, I mean, story. that's yeah, I know. No, but not like really. It, is there stuff like, oh, that would be narrative cliches, like somebody's going to open a door and you're like, uh. No, they,
1: no, they're not really. Yeah. It keeps, keeps you on your toes. It's hard when it, there's supposedly source material but I still, like I haven't read it yet. I was going to buy the book to read it and see, because yeah. it's pretty cheap I books. It's like six ninety nine. The way they tell it is good. The storyline with the family is good. It, I don't know who wrote the screenplay. I didn't look, but it's I think it's pretty well written repetition, not really. There is repetition in it because people are flashback on stuff and different people's point of view. Oh, I like that. So that's good. So no. And beating the drum, there isn't... I don't know what the drum would be. Like ghosts are bad. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I am going to take an overall point off, though, because I don't know where this would go in the rating system, but it's extremely annoying the mother, Carla Gugino. Uh, I don't think it's a spoiler because you find out pretty quickly that she is not alive in the nineties. She dies sometime in the house. She dies, but you don't know how or why or what happens until the end. So she doesn't have anyone. But for some reason, when the, this was very confusing to me, when they are kids, their father is played by Henry Thomas, who is forty-seven years old.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When they are adults, their father is played by Timothy Hutton, who is fifty-eight years old. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why do they have two actors who are not that far apart in age playing men that was 30 years apart? What if I need an
0: older guy than Timothy Hutton? He's only
1: 58. Yeah. I, yeah, but he looks old. Yeah,
0: that's true.
1: He's good. He's yeah. very good. Everything I've seen him in lately, he's been really good. He was in that American Crime show, which is like an ensemble show. Yeah. Like every season they have a different story, and he's always good in that. He was playing someone older who's kind of messed up. In the head. And he was good. And Henry Thomas wasn't bad, but it's like, why? Yeah. I mean, they should have gotten somebody a lot younger. No offense to Henry Thomas, but someone who's, like, in his 30s. I don't understand. Yeah, I get it. So that was confusing, and I'm taking a point off because it's unnecessarily confusing. And someone, like, I looked it up online to say why, because I wanted to know why, and somebody's explanation was, well, it's because the character changed so much, that they were showing, you know, he was much more innocent, and I'm like, did you they know take what?
0: Henry Thomas an agent? You know, oh, that's, that's what someone else said. Yeah.
1: Why did they Make age his him? hair
0: gray, you know. And like they
1: had this couple, the Dudleys, that were caretakers of the house, which I guess that could be a, yeah, you know what? I'm going to take a half point <laughs> off for the weird caretakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That half of narrative. How did I forget about that? That is cliche. narrative cliche. Yeah. So half a point. So it's so it's eight and a half points. They had Annabeth Gish, and they aged her, and the. The guy looked the he looked old in the beginning, yeah. so I don't know. I don't know the actor who played that guy. He was he yeah. was strange. Anyway. But anyways, yes. So eight and a half. Even if you're not into that haunted, the family drama was good. They're a really fucked up family. The thing is, the reason they're fucked up is mainly they blame their father for their mother's death uh-huh. and there's a lot of things that that could relate to. So yeah. see thought... I'm
0: not big on haunted stuff. No, not because no, I because I find it scary or anything, I just don't i don't know it's i get more impatient with it like i'm like what okay
1: that ghost is scaring you why don't you just confront the freaking ghost but then i'm like easy
0: for you to say Scared, yeah Yeah. so anyways good i guess that's it for this time yeah and i'd also like to say because we haven't brought it up in a while and we i guess we need to that if you um like what you're hearing you can go on our website there's a button to donate to Patreon. Yeah. We have gifts. I am going to revise it. One of our original things, we have like a $2 a month, a $5 a month, and then $25 a month. All of them were like, we'd read your name on the air, but we found a lot of people don't want their names read. So we're going to take that off of there. Maybe we'll do like a donor of the month or something. But you do get some other stuff. We have some swag. We have, and we have a monthly newsletter. Magnet. Magnet. Well, Magnet's because you have different levels. Yeah. You're a crime buster or crime. And tote bags. With our logo on them. Yeah. A nice zippered one. And the other
1: thing is, I know it's harder to leave um, reviews now on iTunes. Yeah. Or wherever you listen, if there's a way to leave a review, it would help us. It would help
0: us, yes. Um, You can find everything you need for any of that, except for maybe the reviews part, although we do have subscription things for the different things, on Crime and Stuff Online, our website, as well as old episodes and stuff. If iTunes is driving you nuts like it's driving me nuts and you need to find something out, and I am in the process of updating to more stuff where we have links and pictures. to our research. But I haven't, you know, it's slow going because of time. But I'm catching up. Um, Like last week's Highway 20 Oregonian series, I want to get the links to that yeah, up and stuff. Yeah, that's really good. So I watched
1: those videos. Yeah,
0: so I'm going to try to, or not last week's, but our last episode. And I guess it's my turn next time.
1: Yes, I think can't think wait to see what you
0: have. Something, yeah. I can't either. But anyway, so thank you for listening. listening. Bye. He probably said that you you can't report my lawnmower missing. Not you can't report my lawnmower missing. No,
1: he's saying you can't report your like your neighbor's lawnmower. I know that's what I mean. No, that's what he meant. You can't report my. I'm saying that you can't report my lawnmower missing.
0: No, it would be more like you can't report my lawnmower missing. Much less report a person missing. No, the way you say it, it sounds like he's trying to report a lawnmower is no, missing, and I, he said no, you can't report mine. You, you can't even report no. my lawnmower missing.
1: Anyway, let's the, move on. The person said it. No, that's not what he mean. he means. You can't report someone else's property missing. Right. So you can't report my right. lawnmower missing. Is right. what he's saying. Yeah. Okay. Oh my god.